Dr. Miles Monroe. I'm welcoming you to the opportunity. Did you know that you possess the power and the responsibility to determine your future and destiny? Did you know that you are the sum total of the choices and decisions you make every day? However, the ability to make the right decisions for a life that leads to your God-given destiny depends on your quality of knowledge. Self-development demands self-discipline. It is our desire to see your life transformed through the message on this tape. Prepare to receive as we join this opportunity to grow and expand as we inspire you and motivate you to achieve your greatest in God's purpose for your life. Sit back now and listen to a message that is designed to destroy ignorance and empower you to become an effective human on this planet as you inspire others to reach their highest potential. Let us join the seminar in progress. Why we chose the theme, Applying Kingdom Life to Daily Living. I'm going to focus just briefly on the... the the, the topic living in two worlds on one planet and I want to make some statements first with regards to where we are at in the world the present conditions of our world today is one of social anxiety mental fear political confusion religious conflict economic crisis, cultural clashes, and the mismanagement and the unequal distribution of wealth and resources. That's the way our world is right now. There was a time when time was measured in terms of AD and BC. But in this new division of time we live in, we are now measuring time from September 11 and onward the very foundations of Western culture and Eastern societies are cracking under the pressure of the realities of this new world order post September 11 the very essence of democracy itself and capitalism is being tested and their time-honored guarantees are becoming questionable. Many individuals, and in some cases the masses, are losing faith and confidence in the corporate business structures. Others look with suspicion on the motives and the promises of national governments. Nations of the Caribbean are reeling under the stress of social and political upheaval. Economies of our region here in this beautiful area of the world are struggling to find their place in the global scheme of things. The threat of the very concept of globalization is causing millions of people, especially those in disadvantaged poor countries, to protest the inevitable expansion and explosion of the reality of globalization. We admit that the world has changed and this time the change caught us off guard and the change was not gradual. The nations of the world have entered a period that is 
very undefined. There was a time when you could define the era we were in. Post-colonial era. Post-war era. Pre-war era. But now we don't know what to call this time we're in. It's undefined. Perhaps it is the age of globalization, of terror, the globalization of fear and frustration. Maybe we need to call it a time of confusion. Where do we look for answers in a world like this? The political scientist is perplexed, doesn't know what to call what we're going through. The sociologist is overwhelmed. He doesn't know how to explain our society anymore. The behavioral scientist is baffled, cannot predict human behavior anymore. Students killing their teachers and their fellow students. The religious leader is even more mystified. How do we solve the mounting problems of our world where you live and have to live next year? What is the true source of our problems? Why is it so difficult to find solutions that work? Where do we go for answers? Everybody is searching. I guess my question is, is there a solution that can be applied to the present global situation? As we this week and beyond grapple with these vital questions, it is apparent and obvious that politics is not the answer. Otherwise, President Bush would have solved the maze of the Middle East a long time ago. Science is not the answer, as the specter of AIDS and chemical and biological warfare continue to give science a bad reputation and a negative face. However, the most interesting reality is the fact that religion is also not the answer. As much of the present problems impacting our world today, from terrorism to ethnic cleansing to tribal warfare, they can all trace their source back to some form of religious zeal. So religion is not the, the solution. History itself is replete with the evidence of the failure of religion to provide a balance, security, and quality and just and fairness in society that a mature, loving society craves. Even the tradition of religion of Christianity is littered with the stain of the blood, not of martyrs, but of victims of zealots who destroyed the lives of people, the lives that Jesus came to save in the name of Jesus. Just to mention words like the Inquisition or the Crusaders and suddenly Christianity as a religion is no different or better than the terrorist extremists of Islam. Because we too killed in the name of religion. So where do we go for answers? If politics can't solve the problem, science can't solve the problems, sociologists cannot solve the problems, and religion seem to be the source of most of the problems. Where do we go for answers? And tonight, we are here in this convention 
bringing together people from different countries and status in life. We are here to address this very question and to present a solution that I believe is simple, natural, and reachable. We can solve the problems of the whole world. I am convinced. We believe that no one knows a product like the manufacturer. And the creator who made the product called Earth and then made mankind to live on it, he has provided his solution to his own world's problems and it's not religion. Jesus is not the answer, but he brought the answer. Jesus is not the destination, but he said he is the way to that destination. He came to introduce us to God's solution, and it is not a religion. Jesus came, in his own words, to introduce what he calls a kingdom. In his first public statement made at age 30, leaving the banks of the Jordan and going through the desert for 40 days without food, passing the test of humanity, he steps out of the desert in the hot sun of time, knowing that he had the answers to every man's problem. And his first public statement goes like this in the fourth chapter of Matthew, verse 7. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has arrived. That was his first public statement. The implication of his declaration and the core of the message that he taught as the answer to man's problems indicate that the solution to our earthly woes is not religion, but a completely new idea, and that is the idea of a governing influence, a kingdom. What is a kingdom? A kingdom consists, simply put, of a territory over which a king exercises sovereign authority and influence. In effect, a kingdom is a king ruling over territory. And the question is, why did God send Jesus, his son, to declare and teach about a kingdom, this kingdom of heaven? To answer this question, it is necessary to understand God's original plan and idea for man. And we know what that plan is. But for reinforcement, I want to remind you what that plan is. God created man for one purpose, and he declared it in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when he said, let us make man in our own image and in our likeness. Why? Let them have dominion over the fish, the birds, the cattle, and all the earth, and those things that creep upon the ground. In verse 27, God says, so I made man in my own image, likeness, male and female, created I them. And God blessed these creatures and said, dominate the earth. The word dominion means to control, to manage, to lead, to govern, to master, 
to have authority over, to have jurisdiction and responsibility over and for. To have dominion means to rule and to lead. God was telling man, I have set you up as a ruler over the planet called Earth and I want you to rule it and dominate it for me. Man is God's extension in rulership on a physical earth. Heaven is a supernatural, invisible territory. God is king over the invisible. But for the visible on earth, he made you, mankind, king over the territory called earth. So mankind is a ruler, the word we use is king, over the domain called earth. And the reason why God did that is because he wanted to extend his kingdom of heaven on earth through the mechanism and the agency of his sons called mankind. God never created man to be servants, but sons. He never created man to be a religious entity, but rather a relationship entity. God never intended for man to establish an organization of rules and rituals, but rather a dynamic relationship of daily common union with God so that man could walk in the authority and the wisdom of his will on earth. In Daniel chapter 7, and I'd like for all of you to read this verse with me, it's a verse that blew my mind. Daniel saw something, and I'd like for you to read this in verse 13. Daniel saw a vision of our time. Daniel lived before our time. And Daniel saw life at the coming of Jesus. Here is what Daniel said about our time. Verse 13. He said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. And all peoples of the earth and nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now go down to verse 18, which blew my mind. Daniel says, I saw this creature, this, this being, and I recognized him as the, as the Son of Man, which is a term Jesus used for himself. But look at verse 18. It says, But the saints of the Most High God will receive from this man the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. I stress, Daniel said that when the Son of Man comes, he will bring back a kingdom. A kingdom is a governing authority that influences and impacts its territory. Matthew 6, Jesus comes preaching. In verse 32 he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything you need will be added unto you. And stop worrying about tomorrow, he says, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. Tomorrow has its own problems, he says. But you seek the kingdom, and these things you need are in the kingdom. Matthew 13, 11, he says, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to my disciples, to you, but not to those outside the kingdom. 
Whoever has will be given and more. And he who has will be given even abundant. Whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken from him. Matthew 13, 31. He continues. He told them another parable. I want to drive this home. He said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Which a man took and plants in the field. A very small seed that's the size of a penny seed. And though it is the smallest of all seeds, he says, yet when it grows, it is the largest garden plant and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can come and branch in it and build their nest in it. He said the kingdom of God starts very small, but it becomes big in influence and takes over the garden. Matthew 13 verse 33, one of my favorites. He says, the kingdom of God is like yeast that a man took and put in a dough or a woman puts in a large dough of flour until it works all through the dough. The kingdom of God is like yeast. Matthew 30, 13 verse 37, he repeats himself again. He says, the one who sowed the seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The good seed stands for who? The sons of the kingdom. You know this story about the sower. He said the sower sows what? The word. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Look at what he changes here in this story. In one of the parables he says the, the seed is the word. But in this parable he changes it. He says the sower is the son of man and the seed is who? You didn't read it, huh? The seed are the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. <laughs> and the enemy who sows them is the devil. Verse 39. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. Christ is explaining his own parable. It's one of the few places where Christ explains himself. He said, the sower is me, the son of man. And the seed is the sons of the kingdom. And I throw them everywhere. Some of them land in the midst of thorns. But the thorns are the evil ones. He said, but I am not afraid to throw my sons of the kingdom in the midst of thorns. Because I know they are like yeast. They will infect, influence, and take over wherever they land. Matthew 16, he talks about the kingdom again. He says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples and said, don't tell anybody I'm the Christ right now. Matthew 24, 14. He says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. That's when the end will come. Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those, verse 24, on his right, Come, you are blessed of my father. Take your inheritance. What is the inheritance? The kingdom prepared for you before the creation of the world. Isn't that beautiful? And then he goes on to say, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. 
I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Have you ever connected the two? He said, repeat it, come, take your inheritance, the kingdom of heaven, which was yours before the earth began. Why? Verse 35, because I was hungry and you fed me naked and you clothed me. Apparently he's saying, if you are really in the kingdom of God, it's supposed to show up in influencing society. That means we are not supposed to be sitting in buildings with stained glass windows and bells and pews and pulpits preparing to go to heaven and abandon earth. But he says, kingdom people change poverty into wealth, hunger into food, nakedness into clothing, and get the prisoners rehabilitated. In other words, we ain't going nowhere if we are true believers. We are going to bring heaven to earth, not earth to heaven. This is kingdom life. God does not want you and I to leave earth. The gospel that have become prominent in the world, in the western world particularly, is a result of oppression. In the years of slavery, when the gospel of the Christian faith was used to oppress, the oppressor also taught the oppressed that there was a gospel for them too. There were two Gospels, one for the master, one for the slave. The master's Gospel says, I wear my shoes now. And the Gospel he gave the slave was, you'll wear your shoes in the by and by. The slave was under pressure, didn't know what to do, couldn't get from under the stress of oppression. And so they came up with their own songs. I got a shoe. And Massa got a shoe. And all of we as God's children got a shoe. He wear his now, but when I get to heaven, that's a slave song, not a church song. Songs like I'll Fly Away was written by slaves. Why? Under pressure when things are tough. You don't want to stay here. So you got to sing I'll Fly Away. Oh, glory. Why? Because things are tough. That's not a scriptural song. It's a song of escapism which produces theology of escapism in the church. Where we prepare people to leave earth, not change earth. That will change this week. We are going to put the world on notice that before we leave, things going to change. We will not leave the world in the hands of the governments because we got another government we represent. I don't believe in Christian governments. It's a satanic idea. A Christian government is no better than a Muslim government, a Hindu government, and a Buddhist government. They're the same. Christ never told us to establish governments. What I do believe in is a government filled with Christian believers and their value systems and their morals infect legislative development, builds development, so that the impact of the word of God and the principles are felt through society without religion. 
just the way yeast influences dough. As a matter of fact, you don't have to pray for yeast to influence dough. Just leave it alone. Uh, you ain't got to fast and believe God for yeast to influence dough. When yeast gets dough, dough is put on notice. Y'all don't understand kingdom living here. That's why God would put you right in the midst of a job you don't like. Why? He doesn't like it either. So he dropped you right there to change the place. Not for the place to change you. Let it influence. That's why God doesn't want a bunch of preachers. The last thing we need in this country is another preacher. I'm trying to get rid of my job now. <laughs> what God wants is the church to train the faint and to prepare them for the work of their ministry in their disciplines, to impact their disciplines with the kingdom influence and the value systems and the principles of the Bible so that the entire nation could be infected by the kingdom influence through your job. This is living in the kingdom. We live in two separate kingdoms. I am in this world, but I'm not of this world. That means your job is not permanent. You can't fire a man who's temporary. Y'all get that next week. Wherever you're working today is an assignment by God for infection. Heavenly infection. Infect the place. And you infect it first of all by going to work on time. And not spending excessive lunch hours. Stealing the man's money. And it means infecting them by working overtime and not asking for too much pay. Because you ain't working just for money. You're working because of your integrity and your excellence of service. That's kingdom influence. The impact of two kingdoms on this earth. I want to close with some thoughts. I want you to write them down. And then I want to pray. I want to talk to you about just a brief concept of kingdom citizenship. The Bible says that we are on one earth with two worlds. The word world, I'll put some notes up here so you can take notes. The original plan of God was rulership over earth. The fall of man was a fall from rulership dominion, not from heaven. So if man didn't fall from heaven, then heaven should not be his destination. Thirdly, God sent Jesus to restore heaven's government rulership on earth through mankind. And the assignment of Jesus, therefore, was to reintroduce the kingdom rulership of government of God to earth. The goal of God, therefore, was really not religion, but rulership through relationship. That's what God always wanted. I want to stress this, that every kingdom has a country life, a culture. The kingdom of God is not a religion, but a government, but a country. And the country 
of God's kingdom is called heaven. That's why it's called the kingdom of heaven. The word of means from. Our country is called the commonwealth of the Bahamas. Well, the kingdom of God is called the kingdom of heaven. The Bahamas is a place, a literal physical territory, and the commonwealth is of that particular place. So it is with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of heaven. Heaven is the place. The kingdom operates, therefore, on governing laws like any other country. And those laws are called principles and precepts. And this is important to understand. Every country has citizenship. Citizenship is necessary for entrance into a kingdom. You can't just move to the Bahamas so you can become a Bahamian. You can't go to America so you can become an American. You are called an alien, illegal immigrant. The same thing is true about the kingdom of God. Now, if you visit America, you are still not an American. If you visit the Bahamas, you are still not a Bahamian. If you visit a church, you're still not a Christian. Y'all don't understand what I'm talking about. Wearing a robe and, and bowing and praying doesn't listen. You can talk American, you're still an American. I heard Brother Charlie tonight trying to talk Bahamian. I don't care how you say man, you ain't a Bahamian. No matter how you sit in church and say hallelujah, if you ain't born into the citizenship of God, you're still an Don't make you a hamburger. <laughs> Citizenship is a serious thing. Christ didn't bring us a religion, He brought us a governing authority, a kingdom, a country. Citizenship, therefore, must learn the Constitution. When you become an assistant of the United States, of the Bahamas, or Jamaica, you go through a process. They test you. Sometimes they say, in America, you got to be there for a few years first before they even trust you. Why? They want to check you out. The FBI, CIA, they want four years to check you out. And when they're convinced that they can trust and have some allegiance from you, then they will offer you the privilege. And by the way, it's a privilege to be a citizen. Now you get rights after you become one. But you don't have a right to become one. Citizenship demands that you learn your constitution. Everybody hold your Bible up, please. Repeat after me. I have in my hand the constitution of my country, the kingdom of heaven. Now, nothing is worse than having rights and don't know them. You lawyers know what I'm talking about. That's why you can teeth from people. The devil knows that if you don't know the truth about that book, he will kill, steal, and destroy. Hosea 4, 6 says, my people, everybody say my people. God says, my citizens are destroyed, not because of the devil, not because of demons, not because of sin. He said, but because of a lack of knowledge. That's why I teach. Having a good feeling don't set you free. When you go in the courtroom, you don't get things because you feel good or you feel sad. 
You know, when you start moaning, oh, mm-hmm, you know, the judge said, now, please, uh, we'll call a joint for a few minutes, go out and catch yourself. And the same thing is true about God. You don't get things from God because you moan and groan and pray long and roll on the floor. Oh, Lord. Mm-hmm. God, will you shut up? And I want to hear your case. It's a kingdom. It deals with rights and it deals with qualification. Write this one down, please. The laws of the kingdom are called, Jesus calls them keys. Keys of the kingdom. Keys means they are secrets. Anybody got a bunch of keys? Can I use a bunch of keys? Got a bunch of keys. I got a big bunch of keys. All right, here's a bunch of keys. I'm gonna show you a little trick about keys now. All right, I'm gonna give my keys to the prime minister. These keys, I don't know about them. Here's the keys. All right, now they're yours. Okay, what does he have in his hand? Keys. That's all he has. Now, there's a key there that probably opens a car, one that opens a house. One that opens a cupboard with a lot of money in it. One that opens a medicine cabinet that got a lot of medicine to keep you healthy. One that opens a kitchen that a lot of food is in the refrigerator. I mean, them keys got a lot of stuff there. So I leave it with him and I'm gone. He goes outside and there's a thousand cars in the parking lot. He got the keys, but he can walk home tonight. Now he walks. Where's he going to walk? Don't know what house the key opens. What does he do then? He spends the rest of his life experimenting with every car in the country. By the time he's 97 years old, he finally finds it. I'm too old to drive. See, most people are that way with that book. Hold the book up again. Hold the Bible up. The Bible is your bunch of keys. It's the keys to the kingdom. The problem is, most folks don't know how to use a thing in that book. Oh, they got the keys. I want to stress something here. Bible never says there are keys to the kingdom. It only says there are keys of the kingdom. Having a key of something and to something is two different concepts. Jesus never said there's a key to the kingdom. All right? I will invite you to my house. You come to live with me for a couple of days. I give you the key to the front door. Matter of fact, I open the door, leave it open for you, and you come into the lobby of my house. The problem is, I locked every room. So you are in the lobby of the house, but the kitchen is locked, bedroom is locked, bathroom is locked, the living room is locked, the storehouse is locked. But you are in the house. And in your hand you have the key to the front door. But that's the only key I gave you. And I leave you there for ten years. Problem is you got the key to my house but not of my house. Notice Christ used the plural word. Keys of. That means you can get inside the house of being born again and still starve to death. Get sick, not sleep, be frustrated. And live your life saying praise the Lord but broke. 
because you can't get in the safe where the money is. Praise the Lord, but frustrated because you can't get in the bedroom to sleep, so you get depression and frustration and stress. Praise the Lord, but you can't get in the kitchen, so you're starving to death, can't eat. Praise the Lord, because you can't get in the medicine cabinet, and you're sick because you can't get the key. In other words, you can be born again and still die in the lobby. That is why we must learn how to live in the kingdom. We've got to learn the system. The keys. Isaiah 9 says something about Jesus in the kingdom. It says, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and what which be upon his shoulders? I can't hear you. What's the government? Verse 7 says, The increase of his government, there will be no end. What does he bring on his shoulders? A government. Christ bought a government. He didn't bring a religion. Matthew 4, 17, favorite verse of mine. He said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has arrived. He's talking about this government. Therefore, the key to the principles is found in Psalm 119. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. They have laid down precepts that are to be fully followed and obeyed. And that by ways would steadfast obey your decrees, O Lord. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. In other words, this whole passage is talking about learning these keys. For us to live in a world, to be successful, we need to learn the secret. Deuteronomy 33.10 says, He teaches your precepts to Jacob and your laws to Israel. O Lord, Psalm 119 says, I will keep your law. This has been my practice. I obey your, obey your precepts. Psalm 119.93 says, I will never forget your precepts for, precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. He's talking about these keys. If you learn them, you live. Joshua 178, he told Joshua, Do not let the book of this law depart from your mouth, but meditate in it, keep it all day, all night, and you will have what? Good success. Deuteronomy 39 says this, The Lord has again delight in you and make you prosperous, just as he delights in your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God and keep his commandments, he'll prosper you. Once again, it's the laws. The book of the law will not depart from your mouth. That Bible you get in your hand is not a devotional. It's a chain of keys. And it teaches you how to live in the kingdom of God. Hosea 4, 6 says that we prayed because of what? A lack of knowledge. Therefore, here's a secret to the whole thing. The secret of the kingdom are the principles and the laws by which the kingdom functions. That's the secret. We've got to learn them. Christ calls them secrets. You must first enter the kingdom... Then you've got to study and meditate the word to learn the precepts and the principles of God and learn the laws that God has established for your life in order for you to experience the height of kingdom living. Read and study the Bible for successful kingdom living. It's the only way for you to live successfully. No other way for you to have success. There's a house in the Bahamas called the government's house. You see that house up there? That's where the governor lives. I put that there because I want to close what we are here in this earth for. On Sunday, I ended on talking about citizenship impact. We live in two worlds. In the Bible, there are two words for world. first word is cosmos. The other word is terra. The word cosmos means governing influence. The word terra means earth. The Bible says 
the God of this world, the word world, K-O-S-M-O-S, means governing influence. Satan governs and influences the environment. But Christ came with a, another world, his kingdom. He says, I will translate you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of my dear son, the kingdom of light. And then Jesus said, you are in the world, but not of the world. How can that be? He's saying you are on the earth, but you are not of the influencing, governing principles of the world. Our job as believers is to go into that world and infiltrate it and impact it with the principles and precepts of God's constitution. So that it can become just like heaven on earth. And the disciples asked... What should we ask for? What should we pray for? He answered them. Here's what to pray for. Our Father, who art in heaven. Holy is your name. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth, just like it is in heaven. He didn't pray for us to leave earth to go to heaven. He said, pray for heaven to come to earth. I believe that this last opportunity we have with all the problems in the world is the greatest opportunity for the church the real church not the religious people but those with a relationship a dynamic relationship with the king that government house there to me is one of the greatest signs of the kingdom when the Bahamas was a colonial power We were under a kingdom called Great Britain. Great Britain colonized the Bahamas. And what's amazing is God chose the same system that Great Britain copied from the Romans. Christ never came to earth until the Roman Empire was in power. The answer to why is simple. Every empire before Rome never set up a system like the kingdom of God. The Roman Empire was the first empire that duplicated the system that God intended to set up in Genesis. The Assyrians never had a kingdom like Rome. The Babylonians never had a kingdom like Rome. The Greeks and the Egyptians never had a kingdom like Rome. Whenever these empires invaded a country, they did something strange. They would take all the people from the country, bring them back to their country and make them slaves. But the Roman Empire was the first country in history, the first empire in history to change the whole system. They would invade countries, but leave the people in the countries. And Caesar was a smart emperor. His system was, we'll leave the people in the country, but we'll send one of our own to that territory. And his job is to make that territory just like Rome. And that's why the Roman Empire became the most powerful empire in history and the most organized because Rome did not supplant people and bring them to Italy. It took Italy to the people and that's why the system was called, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. That means any country where Rome was in control became just like Rome. Rome sent a person from Italy to live in the territory and he was called a governor. Pilate was one of them. His job was to make Palestine just like Rome. 
It was a system of sent for the son, born of a woman, born under the law. What was God waiting for? The fullness of time. What is the fullness of time? The fullness of time doesn't mean the time on a watch. It means everything is in set position. God was waiting for everything to be just right before he sent his son. And according to God's program, the Roman Empire was just right. So he sent Christ. Every word that Caesar used, Jesus used. They called Caesar Lord. They called the Roman Empire a kingdom. They called the Roman tax a tenth. The tax of the empire. The Roman soldiers, wherever they went, they, they personified Rome. Every governor represented Caesar and all of his power. It was the perfect system. So when Jesus came, he made this statement. I am a king too. Caesar's a king, I am a king. Caesar got a country, I got a country. Caesar never leaves his country, my father never leaves his country. <laughs> Caesar is influencing the world, I came to influence my planet back again. Uh, I am the king. I came to reclaim my territory and I'm going to leave you. So I've come, I have conquered, I've destroyed the power of the one who held authority over the kingdom. I have destroyed his work. I'm finished. I have conquered the world. The earth is mine again. In case you don't know, it's true. He said, no man can take a strong man's house until he first binds a strong man and takes away the spoils and gives it back to the children. He did that. But then he left. What did he do? He sent from heaven a governor. His name is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job is to make earth like heaven. To make the citizens act just like heavenly beings. So in the Bahamas, we speak English because the British influenced us. We drink tea. We wear long socks and short pants. We eat with knife and fork. And we say good evening instead of good night. We are strange people. We act just like the British. We drive on the wrong side of the road. Which is the British side of the road. We are just like them. We are roundabouts. Narrow streets and pink buildings. British to the core, you know. Why? We are just like the mother country. Christ says, that's the system I want. He doesn't want you to leave earth and come to heaven. He prayed against it. He says, Father, do not take them out of the world. But keep them in the world. But keep them free from the evil in the world. Why? Because their job is to change the world to be like heaven. My challenge to you is to live in this world, but not of this world. Don't think the way the world thinks. You are under another jurisdiction. When the world says it's impossible, check your government upstairs and see what they say about it. When the world says you're sick, check the government and it says you're well. When the world says you're poor, God says no. Let the poor say, I am rich. When the world says you're weak, the government says, no, let the weak say, I am strong. We think different. Nothing is impossible if you are under the right government. This week we're going to learn 
from all these great speakers how to apply this kingdom life to your job, to your marriage, to your parenting, to your business, to your work. How to infiltrate and impact every area of influence in your life so you can be a blessing to the planet. May it happen in our lifetime that people begin to think when they meet you, they're meeting God. This is God's will. Amen. I want to ask you tonight to let us pray for a church that is vital and relevant. Believers that are intelligent. Hi, this is Dr. Miles Monroe. We welcome you to the opportunity to transform your life. Did you know that you possess the power and the responsibility to determine your future and destiny? Did you know that you are the sum total of the choices and decisions you make every day? However, the ability to make the right decisions for a life that leads to your God-given destiny depends on your quality of knowledge. Self-development demands self-discipline. It is our desire to see your life transformed through the message on this tape. Prepare to receive as we join this opportunity to grow and expand as we inspire you and motivate you to achieve your greatest in God's purpose for your life. Sit back now and listen to a message that is designed to destroy ignorance and empower you to become an effective human on this planet as you inspire others to reach their highest potential. Let us join the seminar in progress. of his courts. As you know, the theme for this conference has been royal protocol. And protocol has to do with the orderly procedure necessary to create the correct environment for execution of service. Royal protocol is necessary and God is very, very sticky about protocol. Protocol has to do with procedure. Write that word down, please. Protocol is correct procedure. There's one thing about God that you can conclude. And that is God is a God of order. Decency and order. Order has to do with ordination. Everything is ordained to be in a specific spot in a process. So protocol has to do with order. It has to do with process. If you study the Old Testament that God reveals his worship plan in, the first thing God told Pharaoh, yes, Pharaoh, he says, Moses, you tell Pharaoh for me. I want him to let my people go. And the first reason was not to go to a land. We think that God wanted Pharaoh to take them to a land, to, to go, them to take to a land. That was not the motivation. The first thing God instructed was, tell Pharaoh to let my people go, watch this, so that they may come out in the wilderness to worship. 
to worship. God says, look, Pharaoh, where you have them is apparently not the right environment. So I want them to change their environment. I want them to change their location. Bring them out to the desert, Moses, to be with me that they may worship me. Protocol. Moses eventually got them out. You know the story. When they got out, God said, okay, Moses, my next instructions. Build me a place. It has to be portable. In other words, you can set it up, break it down, set it up, and break it down. Because we're going to be moving. I want a mobile sanctuary. That is what God called the tabernacle. Tabernacle, write the word down, tabernacle is a big word, can you spell it? The word tabernacle means habitation. Habitation. Tabernacle means to live in or with. God says, build me a tabernacle. Build me a place that I can come and hang out with you guys. Vernacular language here. I don't want to stay in heaven only, but I want to be in your presence and you in mine. But you got to build a certain place for me. Now, here is a mystery. All of you have been saying, God is everywhere. Right? I mean, you say that often. God is omnipresent. Could it be that that is not completely correct in the sense that it doesn't mean he personally in his presence is everywhere. Because here God, who is omnipresent, telling Moses to build a specific place for him to dwell. Um, I'm trying to find a human example. I'm so weak in this. Because God is so deep, you can't find vocabulary sometimes. All right. Let me ask you a question. Where are we right now? We are in a building in the Bahamas in a certain street. So you are in the Bahamas. Are you in your house right now? No, but you are in the Bahamas. So you are present in the Bahamas, but you are not at home. It's possible to be present but not at home. Some of you are getting it. God dwells everywhere, but he's trying to find a home. <laughs> and God does not dwell in temples made by hands, Paul says. And God does not dwell just anywhere. God inhabits, the word there is what? Tabernacle. Where? I can't hear you. In the praises of his people. But God told Moses, build me a place that I may dwell among you. And God gave him a design. Very beautiful design. It was a rectangular shape pattern and on the inside were 
three smaller rectangles. The outer rectangle is called the outer courts. The middle rectangles, obviously, is called the middle courts. And then the center was a small little area, and that was called the inner courts. And God told Moses, now when the people come to me, let them come to the gate of the outer courts, and then let some of the priests come in the inner, the, the, the outer courts, and they must do certain things. And it was prescribed what they must do. Then he says, some must come into the middle court, and they must do certain things. And then one comes in to the holies of holies. Procedure. Protocol. And then he says, only that one that makes it in can come near to... See that box up there? Get a shot of that box camera. It was a place that was called the Ark of the Covenant. Covenant means contract. In that box that Moses built, he put in the box the Ten Commandments God gave him. He put the budding rod of Aaron and he put some manna. He kept some in a jar and put it in the box to remind the people some great things that we don't even get into. But and on the seat on the top of that, where the angels you see there, the top of that is called the mercy seat. The thing on top, the covering, it's called the mercy seat. The priest would walk in and he would pour the blood right in the middle of those angels. And the blood would land on the top of the box, the mercy seat. He would then put blood on the four corners of the box. We would have big horns representing the power of God. And as soon as he did that, now the room was black. Only a candle was in that room. Suddenly the presence of God would come and dwell right between the angels. And the priests would literally be in the presence of God. When the presence of God came, the entire nation was affected. From that one little box in that little room, the entire nation was affected. Everybody prospered. Every battle they won. Everything that went against them failed because of that presence in that little room. Now God said, tell the priest, do not come in here with any sin in your life. Why? There's procedure. There's protocol. If any man comes here and there's iniquity found in him, God says he will die instantly. So whenever a priest went into that little room, they would tie a rope around his right leg. A long rope. And they would let him in as he goes and they let the, the, the rope go. If he drops dead, they'll just pull him out and they'll say, next. Now, I don't know how many of you would have volunteered for ministry at that time. Some of y'all can't wait to get in ministry. But that's ministry at the highest level. What was the priest trying to get into? The presence of God. Some of you need a rope around your leg today. Because some of us have no idea of respect for God's awesome presence. Chewing gum while we worship it. Checking our face, fixing our hair. Looking at our watch and God saying, you know something? I need some ropes. <laughs> respect for God's presence is an awesome thing. Thank God for the mercy seat procedure. Now, why do God have three courts? And I want to deal with this very quickly. There's a lady up on the screen you'll see in a minute. And she is 
a royalty. Her name is Queen Elizabeth of England, Great Britain. You from England here know much about royalty. Royalty is a different kind of life from the commoner, they call it, the commoners. First of all, if you go to visit Buckingham Palace, which we've had the occasion to, to actually go there, and I had the privilege of actually going in there one time as a guest. It's incredible. You can go into Buckingham Palace and never see the Queen. Anybody here? The place is designed in such a way that you can actually go in there, have a big party, and never see the Queen. Because to get to the Queen, you've got to go through a series of rooms and etiquette training. You can't just go dropping on the queen. You won't follow this. You actually have to be prepared. Everybody say prepared. To see Queen Elizabeth. They have to prepare you. And it's a very difficult preparation. When you go to see a king or a queen, you must go through what they call royal protocol training. Etiquette training. And they tell you and instruct you what to do. And if you don't do it, you are arrested and cast out. And so you proceed based on your qualification training. Well, let's read how God courts work. Psalm 65 verse 4. Blessed are those who choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house. Mark that scripture please. Very important scripture. God says, blessed are you who choose to come near my courts. Watch this. To live in them. Normally when you go to visit a royalty, you don't stay there. But according to God, he's the only king who wants you to set up residence in the courts. To live in his house. Why? The last line is important. Because you are going to be filled with good things. Of what? His house. The key to getting blessed is to get in God's house. I'm not talking about this building. I'm talking about his courts. Let's find out the benefits of the courts today. Psalm 82, 84 verse 2 says, My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. Psalm 84 verse 10. Look at this verse. Better is one day in the courts of the Lord than a thousand days anywhere else. There must be something about the courts of the Lord that, are, that is so wonderful that David says one day is worth a thousand anywhere else. Let me see if I can put some value on that. David says, you work for, th for a thousand days and get paid and you still won't get what I got in one day in God's courts. Anybody following me? He says, a thousand days anywhere else 
is not near one day in God's courts. You can go to the doctor and spend a thousand days getting treatment. And David says, I'm sick just like you. And if I get in courts for one day, I get healed. Getting into God's courts, he says, is worth a thousand days anywhere else. All right, let's take a look at this. What are the courts of the Lord? Psalm 100. Say 1,000. Psalm 100, verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Okay, that's no problem. Now you're getting into the gates. But go beyond that. And enter his courts with praise. Go beyond the gates and get into the courts. Every king and queen got to have courts. Psalm 96, verse 8. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and then come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 12. When you come to appear before me, says the Lord, who has asked thee of this, you trample my courts. Kings are very sensitive about their courts. Kings control their courts. They control who comes into it, what happens there. Look at what God says about his courts. Look at it again. He says, when you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. God is a little bit upset. How dare you come into my courts and the word trampling could be defined or interpreted as totally ignoring and abusing my protocol. You are acting disrespectful in my courts. How dare you, he says. Let's find out why. We're going to move quickly here because we're going to finish in a minute. A court, what is a court? Write this down. A court is the personal and private environment of a king. What is a court? Say it out loud. What is a court? Once again, what is a court? The personal and private environment. So what is a court? It's an environment. It's an environment. <laughs> the environment affects the thing in it. If I put a seed, an apple seed, a mango seed on your windowsill at home on the tile and leave it there for 50 years, what would happen? What would happen? Not necessarily die. It'll be there. But what would happen to it? Nothing. It will not produce what's on the inside. I discovered this a few years ago, and I told you this during my series on glory, that there's nothing more important than environment. Write that down again. There's nothing more important than environment. I thought the seed was important. No, it isn't. The environment is more important than the seed. Because even though the seed have all that power to bring forth an orchard, it is totally dependent on the environment to be right. Come on, you all talk to me. No matter how great you are as a person, if you are in the wrong environment, you won't produce yourself. Now, what is a court? Read it again. A court is the personal and private environment of the king. Now, the king really is not too excited nor concerned what's going on in the streets, what's going on in the, you know, the bigger country out there, what's happening in other nations. There's one area that the king controls, and that is 
his personal environment, his courts. Let's find out why. Second definition. Courts are progressive. There's not just one court of a king. All kings and queens have a number of courts because courts, again, are designed to control the environment of the king and therefore the king gradually lets you closer to him based on the court you qualify to pass. Why are there three courts? Here's why. Point number three. The outer courts were the place of preparation and training to enter the king's presence. So if you notice when you read the Bible, it says, Enter his gates, plural, with thanksgiving, and enter his courts, plural, with praise. Now, obviously God is saying, look, the first preparation to enter my presence is you got to start an outer course with what? Praise. Praise. Very specific etiquette. Praise. Don't come in there complaining. Don't come in there, you know, grouchy and all kind of bitterness in your heart. Don't come in there gossiping. They put you out. Oh, by the way, if you study courts, this is very important. Every court of every king has soldiers. Now, why are them soldiers there? They ain't there for beauty. They ain't there for decorations. The soldiers are there with weapons. So in case you don't qualify, they encourage you to leave. Are you with me? God has the same thing. He has soldiers. That's why he has cherubims and seraphims. And they are different angels with different assignments. The seraphims are the ones with all the eyes. They get eyes in the front of their heads, the back of their heads. All their wings got eyes. There's eye, eyes in their backs. I mean, the Bible describes the strange creatures. And they are, they are the Bible calls them uh, uh, seraphims that watch for the glory of God. In other words, they are soldiers, man. When they see anything that doesn't line up, they knock it dead. You remember the priests in the Old Testament who tried to touch the ark? Do you know who killed them? Wasn't God? And seraphims did some stuff. Anybody with me? They decided to bypass protocol. You know, it's incredible. Uh, they were carrying the ark, remember? They had to carry the ark on this, on this uh, uh, little trolley with the donkey. And the ark began to slide. You remember the story? And one of the fellows was standing by, one of the priests was standing by, and he saw the ark getting ready to slide. They know God ain't going to slide. Even if God looked like he's dropping, make sure you prepare yourself before you try to catch him. You all understand? Etiquette is serious. This priest went to help God out, and he was killed when he touched the ark. Why? You don't touch this unless you got blood on a big thumb, blood on your nose, blood on both ear, and blood on your big toe. He had no blood. Violated protocol. Seraphim killed him. And the Bible says that the ark was leaning for a while. Why? Ain't nobody going there next to touch that. Everybody say, hey, Sam, you go. No, you go. You used to keep priests. <laughs> nobody touched it. Protocol. Number three, number four rather, the inner courts are the place of the king's personal presence. You could be in the 
king's courts, but not be in the king's presence. Many church meetings have a great time in the outer courts, and then they go home. They never experience the presence of the king. Some people even go into the middle course, have a good experience, but they never quite got into the king's presence. Royal protocol is a requirement for all royalty. And God has set up his protocol. Let's find out the purpose of the courts real fast. Number one, the courts of a king is to maintain the right atmosphere for the king. That's why God gave us Eden. Eden is God's env environment for his own presence. And when God created you in his image, he also had to put you in the same presence. So he made Eden. Eden is God's atmosphere for productivity. God needs Eden. Eden is the place of his presence. It's an environment that is conducive to God. And God gave Adam the same thing. Eve, Eden is not a place. It's an environment. That's why the archaeologists can't find it today. It's not a place. It moved. That's why it's called Eden. Eden means the moment for the spot of the presence of God. And so God gave Adam his presence because Adam is just like God. You are just like God. Let me put it this way. You cannot function without the right environment. And the environment God prescribed to you is Eden. So the most important thing you need to do right now and all the rest of your life is to praise the Lord. <laughs> I will bless the Lord at all times and his praise along shall continually be where? In my mouth. Why? Because the Lord inhabits. You throw Paul and Silas in jail, Paul says, I got a secret. We can complain or praise. Complaining keeps Eden away. Praise attracts it. And we function when we get in Eden. So Silas, let's sing. They started singing. I mean, Joshua saw that city, strong, bound up city with walls. Joshua said, Lord, what should I do? God said, get the singers. <laughs> Don't get the military guys first. Get the singers, he says. And let the priests march around the city with the ark and let them sing. Why? Because I want to dwell and that place is too small. So when I try to get in, I'll break it up. By the way, seven is the number of perfection. When you, when you perfect praise, you got yourself a guess. He's coming. You're going through a little difficulty right now. I don't know what it is. You need to, matter of fact, I want you to do this. Just try this this week, okay? Take all the bills you got at home on that little dresser. Put them on the floor when you get home. And I want you to march around on seven and just sing. This ain't no joke. You start praising God. Your business ain't doing too well. I want you to march around the business on the inside before anybody gets it. And just say, I love you, Lord. I praise you. You are awesome, wonderful, powerful, magnificent. You alone are God. I extol you. I exalt you. I bless your name. And let the presence of God come in that particular business. Now, the fellow down the road got the same business, but he ain't got the presence. The atmosphere. The second purpose of a court is to control the environment for the royal presence. A king controls his environment. I can't stress, stress this enough. That's why the kingdom of God is so important to learn. You cannot function in the kingdom of God without God's presence, and yet you cannot do that without praise and worship. To protect 
the attitude of the king. This third one is important. Write this down. Everyone write this down, please. The purpose of a court is to protect what? The attitude of the king. This sounds very interesting. An upset king is a dangerous king. If you read the book of Proverbs, written by a king, all through that book, I want you to look at the word king in your computer, if you get it, and press search. And when the scriptures come up, read all the scriptures. You will find this statement throughout that particular book. It says, do not make a king angry. Now, most of us don't understand. What are you talking about? Let me tell you something. An angry king is bad news. So the, the cause of the king is to do what? Protect the king's attitude. You want the king to be happy. So the king wants to be happy too. So the king controls this particular area where his throne is. He likes it to be a certain way so he can always be happy. If you read scriptures, uh, in a number of places, when they had bad news for the king, they had to discuss who was going to take it. Come on, read the Bible. And they said, now who's going to tell him? When, when David's son died, boy, this is not, who, who can tell him? Because if the king get mad, see, if a king get angry, now remember, whatever a king says is law. So if the king get mad in a moment, he can say, kill you, and you are dead. So you don't want to make him mad, because he might say, may you be poor forever. Oh, God, have mercy. Everything you have, they take away from you. You understand what I'm saying? So the king's attitude is important. Keeping the king happy is good for the citizens. Watch this. The fourth reason for the court is to maintain order and standard that reflects the king. To maintain what? Order and standard to reflect the king. In other words, you could tell what kind of king a king is by the courts that are around him. If a king has a shabby court with plastic chairs, <laughs> linoleum on the floor, yes, plastic cups, then that tells you what kind of king he is. If his servant's walking around in terraline, well, that's an old piece of cloth, isn't it? Remember terraline is the moss? Terraline, oh, this is the moss? Terraline too old. How about, what's the other one? Polyester? Okay. Yeah, if the servants are wearing polyester, then that reflects the king. In other words, how the people look and how the, the furniture is, is directly a reflection of the king's value. So the courts, listen to me carefully now, the courts were decorated based on the value of the king. Now, those of you who have been to Buckingham Palace, you'll remember this if you ever had a prison. We, we, we went in a big dining room where the queen eats with guests. I walked in the place, the place as big as this room, <laughs> the dining room, big like this, on the roof, the ceiling, had some chandeliers, big as your house. And then the roof was gold. And then the fellas say, that's real gold. I say, what? You mean if I take some of the wallpaper, I could, yeah, get rich of the wallpaper. The chairs were not imitation mahogany. The real thing. The door handle was silver, but it was not coated silver. It's the real thing. And I'm wondering, all this wealth is in this room on the walls. Why? He said, because the place must represent the person. 
So we read in our last session, we did this week with me, that when God talks about Eden, he described the place. He said the carpet was like fiery stones. And it says that even the angels around him, including Lucifer, had diamonds and, and, and sapphire set in their bodies. That means all the servants around were walking diamond chests. That's how lavish God is. God put emeralds on his servants to wear. The carpet in the throne room of God, the Bible describes it, Ezekiel 28, is actually made of jasper and stone, of diamonds. You walk on stuff we fight over. The streets that leads to God's center of power are paved with gold. The gates, God got them carved out of pearl. What kind of king is it? And that's your daddy and you scrapping? Man, say amen, man. You see, the, the, the environment of the king reflects the king. Why? What's the purpose for the courts? The king's court, and I put it point of here, is the atmosphere and environment of the king. And it always includes these things. Number one, beauty and splendor. Number two, dancing. Number three, singing. Four, music. And five, it always includes jesting. And number six, every king's court is filled with celebration and praising the king. Write these down. This is the key to God's courts too. Now, it's not just the key to God's courts. It's the key to every king's court. That's why God calls himself a king. And he's referring to people who know what kings are like. So he's telling them, whatever you know about kingship, treat me that way. Now, let's go over the list very quickly. Every king's court, the king requires these things. One, beauty and splendor. He wants it to look splendorous. That's why he puts gold and silver and fine jewels and carpets and, and wallpaper and, and, and crystal chandeliers. I mean, it has to be splendor. Why? It exposes his splendor. Himself. The Bible uses that word to describe God. Praise the Lord in his splendor. Bless the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. God is very lavish. Oh dear. I say oh dear. Now, I have been dealing with, I was born in Baintown, folks. And you know, we had to clean the plate. Baintown, folks, is a place down here where they to call, you know, the, the, where the poor people was born and lived. That's where I was born, okay? They call it the area, you know, kind of a low-income area. But that's where I was born. And we had a big family, so when we ate, we had to clean the plate. Why? We were still hungry. <laughs> so we grew up with the mentality, you don't waste Nothing. Nothing. So we used to keep everything, even our shoes with holes in them. We used to keep it and clean it, even though we don't wear it no more. We kept it just in case it was a rainy day. So people who are poor keep old things. Because they are afraid they might need it again. Interesting. The mentality. They, they, they are not lavish. As a matter of fact, if you give a poor person something that is very valuable... They will, re they will complain about it. No, you didn't have to do that. I don't deserve this. Why you spend so much money on me? Oh, I can't believe you. You think that much of me? You could have spent this and give it to somebody else and you have the poor. Blah, 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 blah. Sound familiar? 
A woman bought one year's wages and spent it on Jesus' body. And the disciples said, this is a waste. He said, no, this is beautiful. He said, this is beautiful. Why? I deserve every cent she put on me. He was lavish. God put on his carpet, which you put on your finger. Ladies and gentlemen, y'all look at me, man. This is serious. Y'all look at me funny. God rich. <laughs> All right. <laughs> two weeks ago, I was telling y'all I picked up at the airport in a Royal Rolls Royce. I mean a 2002 Rolls Royce. Picked up. Going to speak to Craft Lord Dollars. Church. Chauffeur in the back. Maybe I sit down. I tell my wife, I said, get used to this. I could get used to this. Now, why would the Lord expose you something like that? He's trying to elevate your thinking. Hallelujah. Write this down. God will never expose you to what he doesn't want to give you. God exposes you to prepare you for what he's getting ready to give you. So if God takes you to someone's house, and it's a nice house, and you eat in there, God's telling you something. Y'all ain't listening to me. If God let you drive in someone's nice car, don't just sit there smile. God talking to you, say, look, I want you to get used to this feeling. I'm getting you ready for your own blessing. Say amen, somebody. Lord, have mercy. When somebody buy you a nice shoe, God's trying to tell you about to get a closet full. So get used to how they feel. Praise God. It reflects the king. Reflects the king. Next, dancing. Every king in history, study the history, French kings, German kings, English kings, Spanish kings, check all the history, go to the history book read. They love dancing. Matter of fact, there were dancers that were trained only to dance in the king's presence. Some of you wondering why the church is supposed to have dance. I, mean, I thought it had been part of it. No, dance that church. Listen. The Anyhow, let me stop. <coughs> can I touch something? I can touch this. I got to touch this. See, this looks too good. I was brought up in the Baptist church, and I had a Pentecostal church, etc. Some of you have had experience. And, you know, they, they would read the scriptures. Praise the Lord in the dance. There will be no dancing in this church. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> you read in the Bible. The Bible said, praise the Lord in the dance. Praise the Lord in the dance. Praise means to speak well of, to celebrate him. In what? The dance. Now, there are a couple of kind of dances we get. In the Pentecostal church, they call it bucking. Thank you! Hit somebody head off, hat fly one way, okay? Now, maybe that's a dance to you. Dance to you. But you couldn't, in the king's court, you couldn't do that. Because the king deserves the best. So the king used to have people, schools of training people to dance just for the king. You don't come in any kind of movement and any kind of... You got to go and get what? Training for royal protocol. When the king called for his dancers, they came out dressed in their uniforms. Their movements were synchronized, and the king would sit there, and he would make them, he'd ma they'd make him feel like he's the king. That's the best. Dancing. 
Dancing brings the king joy. That's why we have dances in church now. Find God. And some of you also try and get used to it. I mean, it's tough to get used to because you see, you, you don't understand the royal part of it. The, they ain't dancing for you. You ain't the king. Come on, praise the Lord. They dancing for Jesus and Christ. Now watch this. I'm going to blow your mind. In the book of Hebrews chapter 2, it says, He also rejoices over his church and dances in the midst of the candlesticks. You all don't understand the Bible. I ain't got time to go. But read it, chapter 2. In other words, when Jesus gets excited, he's sitting on the throne watching you. But when he sees you getting so, mm-hmm, he pitched up too. And Christ said, yeah. Woo! The Bible says he dances in the midst of the candlesticks. And he rejoices over you with joy. Joy means to leap around wildly with praise. Imagine you make Jesus dance. And a happy king is a dangerous king. Because he started giving things away. Y'all ain't get it yet. Some of y'all only dance. Let me say something here too. We come to a place like this. And we watch the dancers dance. The king wanting you to dance for yourself. So when you, when they finish, get up and do a little piece. When you go home in your kitchen, you're fixing things. Put that salt in while you're dancing. Praise. Chop the onions. Hey, hey. Woo-hoo. Hey, hey. You bless the Lord. You'll have more onions than you ever could believe. He's blessed with onions. Come on, clap your hands. Praise God. He's a dance before the Lord. Don't cut your finger, but go ahead. Bless the Lord. Amen. And this is important because we need to understand that, that God loves us to bring joy to him. You remember I told you about Herod. Herod said to that young girl, you dance to me. I'll give you anything you want. All kings do that. He said, even up to half of my kingdom. He's a teenage girl. But that's how bad he wanted to dance. I wonder what God promised you lately. You don't, oh boy, it's going to be deep. You don't have to pay a king anything to get something from him. Just make him happy. That's important. You want something from God? Start singing. Start shouting. Start clapping hands. Start celebrating. Hey, God loves it. Asaph is not just some conference. It is the heart of his presence. Always praising, always sanctified, always worshiping God. It's music. Kings like music. Look at that number three. They love music. Woo! Love music. Now there's some churches who say they don't believe in music. You all know them churches? They don't believe in music. I don't know what kind of Bible they get. But the one I got, full of music. David was a king, keep in mind. And David said, play upon the lyre, play upon the harp, rejoice in the Lord, beat the high cymbal, beat the small cymbals, celebrate with the tambourine, let me hear some noise, David says. Solomon was a king, and he was depressed. What did he do? Call for music. David was a a worshiper, and the king liked his presence. You want God to hang around you? Sing all the time. 
I gave you all a revelation. Write it down. If I want God to be in my company all the time, I should sing all the time. Kings love happy people. Because people make him happy. I believe God is, is stay away because we're always complaining. I get under this. They always get in the head of me. I don't know what's wrong with life. Life always because you know some I stay this this is depressing. It's depressing. I will bless the Lord. I can't hear you. At all times, and his praise shall be. I will say of the Lord, you are my refuge, you know. Boy, he said, hey, make me feel good. That means I got to refuge you. <laughs> you are my refuge and my fortress. You are my help. Ooh, you call him that, he got to help you. That's the last one, you see. Look at, look at jesting, eh? Look at this one, this number four, jesting. If you study history, now folks in America won't understand this much, but kings hired jesters. A jester is a comedian. That's where comedians come from. They came from the jesting program of kings. A king would hire jesters just to make him laugh. So when the king was sad with anything, they would call for the jester. The jester would dress funny. He would put on masks and funny clothing, and he would even walk to make the king laugh, see? And then he would tell jokes and give sarony and satire and, and all kind of ironies. He would give stories, and, and the king would laugh. And when the king got happy again, the king would say, all right. And he'd start giving commands. Everybody get blessed. Make God laugh today. Make God laugh. Make him happy. Tell him how good he is, how big he is. Tell him, but God, your hand's so big, the world look like a grain of sand. <laughs> God say, I like this guy. <laughs> Why didn't Job get blessed? Job says, the Lord, oh Lord, thou hast in thy little finger and your thumb the universe. Because I like this guy. And he blessed him seven times more. Celebrating the king. Now, this, this last one, I want to... on this one. Kings love celebration and praising in their courts of the king. Of the king. Now what I mean by this is 
kings like you to tell them about themselves. I don't know how to explain this. It's a strange thing. Kings love to be told about themselves. The more the servants or the subjects tell the king how good he is, how great he is, how wonderful he is, that makes the king bless them more with good things because the king wants to hear it. Secondly, when you tell a king something that he is, watch this, he has to prove it. Oh boy. It's the law of kingly protocol. When you tell a king anything about who he is, he has to prove it. Someone got it. So, when you tell a king, you are great, now he got to do something to prove that to you. My king is awesome, now he got to do something to prove that to you. My king is rich, now he got to do that. He can give you a bunch of stuff to prove it. My king ain't got no sickness, now he can make sure everything around him full of health. Okay, let me try it again. God is the king of the universe. Moses says, Lord, what is your name? I can tell you what to call me because I like myself. Watch this now. Here's my name. My name is Jehovah blank. Now, whatever you want from me, fill in the blank. You want to get a king. I am a king. Talk to me about myself. Okay, he says, Jehovah Rapha. He said, good. Here comes healing. <clears throat> whatever you call a king, he got to prove. So God says, bless me. How did you bless the Lord? To bless someone means to call forth hidden potential. <laughs> oh man, somebody was teaching this week, I don't know if it was Lamar or, or I think it was Ron Cannoli. He said something, it hit me. He said the three Hebrew boys said to the king, Oh king, live forever. King liked to hear that. Oh king, live forever. Except the king, Nebuchadnezzar. We cannot bow down to your golden idol. Watch them now. They said, because we worship a higher king. Now you're the king, we like you. But you violating our other king's law. Now watch their words. Now keep in mind, the invisible king listening. And they're about to say something about it. They said, we cannot bow down to your golden idols, O king Nebuchadnezzar. And you will throw us in the fire, and our king will deliver us. Now he put pressure on his king. He says, and even if he doesn't deliver us, we still won't bow. All heavens are heaven, say now, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nebi, you're in trouble today. Come on, clap your hands. Hallelujah. Lift your right hand, everybody. Say, say, Lord Jesus, all my bills are paid. Go ahead and thank him now. Put pressure on it. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? It only works if you believe it. It's not just saying it. You got to believe that. My king's kingdom is filled, of, filled with health. No sickness. Can you say it? My king's kingdom is filled with health. No sickness. Now you put pressure on the king. 
You got to become that. Whatever Moses called him, he had to become. Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Shalom. He had to become those things. They love for you to talk to them about who they are. God save our gracious king. Long live our noble king. God save the king. What are we doing? What are we doing when we do that? We are singing praises to this person. And we're telling them good things. Born to rule over us. They love to hear that. You are Lord. You are Lord. You see now, if you're smart, you'll sing it with me and loud too. Let me tell you why. When you tell them you are Lord, Lord means what? Owner. In other words, you are in charge of everything about me. My mortgage, my rent, my bills, my phone company. You in You are Lord. You are. That's how it works. You have risen from the dead. And you're my owner. Hallelujah. Sing if you want to sing. I get in your business. Every town will confess one day. And I'm doing it right now. Jesus Christ, you're my Lord. Every bill was just transferred to him just now. Come on, clap your hands for the king one time. Praise God. That's what worship is all about. Whatever you call a king, he has to become. Celebrate the king. The power of a king's court. Coming down to the end here. Access to the king's presence. Access to the king's favor. Access to the king's court is access to his wealth. Access to the king's court is access to his protection. Access to the king's court is access to his pleasure. Access to the king's court is access to his blessings. Access to the king's court is access to his goodwill. Access to the tape when the meeting is over. The cause of his presence. Psalm 3120. This is just an important teaching, folks. It's going to set you up for the rest of the year. It's going to bless you for the rest of the year. If you get this in teaching, you're going to have a good year. Psalm 3120 says, In the shelter of your what? Presence, you what? Hide me. If I can just get in your presence, I'm protected. And you will keep them safe from accusing tongues. Proverbs 25, 6 says, Do not exalt yourself where? In the king's presence. Very important statement. When you get in the presence, get low, low, low. I found out something about kings. And I've spoken to people in royalty about this as well. It's shocking. The lower you get under a king, the more he takes responsibility for you. Let me put it another way. If you cast yourself completely on a king's Grace. The king is obligated to take care of you. Put it another way. If you ever rebel against the king's authority, you've also cut off his good pleasure. <laughs> God loves to hear. You are my 
God loves to hear. I look to your hills for whence cometh my help. Now God know you got money in your pocket, but he'd like you to tell him where you got it from. Come on, talk to me. And when you tell him where, you know, you thank him where you got it from, he gives you more because he wants to keep hearing it. See, when you get rich, the Bible's warning you, don't forget God. Because God gave you that wealth so you can talk about him. Don't exalt yourself after you get a piece of blessing and forget God. God will take the stuff from you. Because the blessing is for you to talk about him to him about him. The lower you get under a king, the more he takes care of you. Kings love submission. And he loves to submit it. Look at Ecclesiastes 8.3. Powerful stuff. It says, be not in a hurry to leave the king's presence. I know you got to go eat right now and everything else, but uh, this is an interesting one. Royal protocol is very, very strange. This is in the Bible here. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. See that, see that gate there? That gate. That's a photograph of the gate to the Buckingham Palace. Look at that gate. The gold on it is real. I want you to put a picture there so you can see that it's a gate. It's a beautiful gate. The gold on the gate is real. I don't go pinch it now. I know some of the things nice and things. Leave the people gold alone, all right? Got, they got soldiers there, so you'll be minister too. All right? You get in the, in the presence of the king. Here's what happens in the presence of the king. The benefits of the presence of the king. We close on this. That's what this is all about. What's the benefits of the presence of the king? Number one, the presence of the king has some benefits. First of all, the king himself is in his presence. So when you got the king, you got all that he rules and owns. Number two, the presence of the king is the presence of his power. When you get into the inner courts, you are in the midst of his power. Anything is possible when you get to the king's power. Number three, the presence of the king is the presence of his favor. When you get in the king's presence, you set yourself up for miracles. Whatever the king says happens. He makes things happen. With one word. I mean, one of the most beautiful things about Nehemiah is that this guy was working in the courts. That's a good job. Nehemiah had a plan, didn't he? Had a desire to go and do something. The advantage he had was that he was right in the king's presence. Now, if you read the book, it keeps saying he was in the king's presence. He was in the king's presence. He was in the presence of the king. He served in the presence of the king. He had a cupbearer in the presence of the king. Presence. That presence word is important. He was in the room. The king looked at him one day, and he was depressed. And the king says, why are you depressed? And Nehemiah said, because my people are trodden down, and the city is broken down, the walls, and, and I'm not happy because my city is in trouble. And the king says, well, what do you want to do about it? He says, I want to go and rebuild the wall. The king said, no problem, I'm the king. He said, tell you what, I'm going to give you letters today. See the power of favor? You're going to get wood. You can get stones, you can get mortar, and if anybody touch you, the power of a king's word, they will have to deal with me, he says. When you enter God's presence, like we did today in worship, and God talks to you, when you leave this building, you are immune to problems. If anyone touch you when you leave God's presence, the presence will destroy them. He takes protection of his own who are in his presence. Fourthly, the presence of the king is the presence of his glory, his nature. And finally, the presence of the king is the presence of his wealth. 
Everything the king owns is available in his presence. The key is his presence. You must be invited. Write this down. This is just protocol. This is taken right from the right from the list of protocol for kings. You must be invited. You cannot enter a king's presence without invitation of the king. Secondly, your physical appearance must be right. Matter of fact, kings require certain dress for the people that come in their presence. You cannot enter a king's presence with slippers on, head all tied up, clapped down. Kings have certain physical requirements. You remember God giving his requirements to Moses? And he, he said, tell the Levites to wear certain clothes. I don't want no sweat. I want four, you know, 12 stones on the chest. I want a sash made of a certain type of cloth. I want to have some goblets at the bottom of the dress. And I want just a certain number of them. And I want an apron folded a certain way. I mean, God said, look, I want them dressed right. You don't just wander into the king's presence. Let's take it spiritually. Were you dressed to come here today? Spiritually? Some folks put on a tie, but they ain't dressed properly. Put on a nice dress, they come in all kind of dirt. Eh? And you come to worship what? A spiritual king? Now you look nice to us, but I wonder what he see. Trampling the king's court? If I regard iniquity in my heart, the king will not hear me. He won't give me an audience. Iniquity is what? Invisible sin, like jealousy. You don't commit adultery, but you just envy somebody. God says, no, you can't come to my court. Who will ascend to the mount of the Lord? God says, I'll tell you who will ascend. Those who has a clean hand and a pure heart. Now the hand you can see is the heart that's invisible. He says, both got to be clean. Get a dress right. Thirdly, mental preparation. They train you to go and see Queen Elizabeth mentally. They tell you what to say, what not to say, when to say it, how long to say it, when to shut up. As a matter of fact, do you know it's etiquette before royalty that you ain't supposed to speak until they invite you to talk? Sometimes we talk so fast to God, God don't know what we're talking about. That's you know something, you came in here, and ever since you came in here, you've been talking. You violate protocol. That's why the first, the Bible says this, watch this. It says, the Lord is in his holy temple now. Listen, when he gets in his place, shut up, he says. The Lord is in his holy temple, do what? Let all the earth keep silent before him. God said, look, when the king show up, you don't talk until I tell you to talk. Some of our prayer meetings, God has leave the prayer meeting. I talk about your private prayer meeting too, and home. You come to God, a long list. I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that. And I want two of these, five of these. And God said, you know something? You came in here and never said an hello to me yet. You ain't praised me, thank me, sanctify me, glorify me, magnify me. You got this list. You're in the king's present, girl. Shut up and just meditate. And listen, let me tell you what to pray for. Oh, it gets heavy. You don't tell a king what to do. Fourthly, Procedure preparation. You got to literally know the procedure. Fifth, you must come with a gift. Never come before the Lord empty handed. Number seven, exalt and magnify Him on the way in and while you're there. 
7. Express thanksgiving and benevolence. Thank him for his goodness. Kings like to be bragged on. Number 8. You must be released by the king before you leave. You can never tell the king, time for me to go. It's against royal protocol. <laughs> if a king wants to keep you all day, you can't leave if you are his subject. The king may say, uh, wait right there. And he's gone for three hours. He's supposed to wait right there. How many times God would tell you, stay here? Yeah, but I, God, I got to go eat. I got to kiss this meeting. God said, look, stay here. I'm going to save you a lot of time if you stay here. You spend five days trying to get something done. I could do it in one day, but you got to stay here. You don't leave till he tells you to leave. Abraham, Ezekiel, these guys, strange guys. God told Abraham, meet me at a place where I'll tell you when you get there. What kind of king this is? Abraham said, okay. And he got up. He started walking. One time God told Moses, go to a place. Moses said, where? Wherever, I, wherever, wherever my name is. Moses said, where that is? I can tell you when, when you reach. What kind of king is this? That's why the people got blessed. They just went and stayed where he told them to stay. You don't leave a king's presence and tell the king to tell you to leave. Alright? So it's very critical that we understand the procedure. Psalm 96 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts with worship. And the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Because he's a king. Psalm 135 verse 2 says, You who minister in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God, praise the Lord. For the Lord is good. Sing praises unto his name. For that is what? Pleasant to him. What do you talk about? Brag about the king. The benefits of the king's courts are all yours. Today, as you leave this conference, and you leave this church building, I want your home to become a court. How about that? How about your bedroom? Your bathroom could become the courts of the Lord. Your car, as you drive away from here, could become the courts of the Lord. I mean, get some of that good music from Brother Lamar and, and uh, 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 who else here? Oh, you here too, eh? Lester Lewis, you know? And uh, get some of that music from Brother Donnie McCracken. Fill your car with music, man. So you can sing along with it. Praise the Lord. I say, praise the Lord. Phil Driscoll told me something when he was here years ago. He says he used music as an atmosphere controller. Control the atmosphere. Today, if you are not born again, and you feel guilty in his presence, he's the one who's sad about that. Because he died for you to come into his presence. He did everything that saved you to come into his presence. And if you don't know him as your personal Savior and Lord today, his first invitation as a king is to you. Come on.